Sitting in the basement, you start thinking about how much things have changed the last nine months. As things slowly unraveled and a constant murmuring of things can't get any worse proved to be false hope time and time again, you made do with what remained. The ravages of winter had managed to come in hard and everyone was in the same boat. There was no oil left in the building, in the neighborhood, or in the region, really. The guy who lived above you, the one who was always having ragers, and had a dog whose nails perennially needed to be clipped. It sounded like tap dancing every morning at 5am when he was getting ready for work. Turns out he was a heating mechanic, which is a really great skill to have when your heat doesn't work, and you needed to make it burn, well, anything you could get your hands on. Today everyone was meeting to discuss the new heating system. Joe was able to rerun the ductwork of the building so the entire building was on one combustion system. He described what it was actually called, but you don't really remember. You don't know much about heating systems, but you had nothing else to do, so you decided to help him out. Help out is probably too generous. You carried stuff for him. Oh yeah, and you helped Joe steal a biogas combustion system out of his company's warehouse. Either way, you got the job done and it felt really good to be totally honest. It was the first time you were proud of something since this whole shitstorm happened. You felt, well, so helpless. Today's meeting would be nice. The whole building had gotten together to deal with the heating situation. It was dire, and oil's not something you can just go get, so when Joe had explained that you can actually create gas out of other burned material, specifically things like wood, you started thinking about the piles of pallets, old fences, so on and so on that scattered the neighborhood like relics of a forgotten past. You had been cold so long your fingers were permanently dulled, they felt like meat prodders more than tactile extensions of your body. The plan was for these meetings to become continuous. The landlord had long stopped asking for rent, nor was he coming to fix anything in the shitty old complex. You weren't sure if he was too busy trying to survive, or if he was afraid of getting shot if he showed up, or if he was already dead, but you really didn't care. You were on your own and the building was yours now. Collectively yours. There was a lot to be done. Too much to be done, frankly. But to survive, you needed to work together. The idea of things ever going back to any semblance of the old normal had long faded, and now it was simply about finding the new normal. That realization happened when the first pipe was cut. You took a sip of your acorn coffee. You almost forget what coffee used to taste like. The meeting's agenda covered the following. Heat, assessments of the structure, plumbing, electrical, daily education session ideas, food and storage techniques, community safety, resource attainment. That was an interesting way of saying stealing. took another sip. Food? Check. Water? Check. Heat? Check. It's a start, you think to yourself, and Marie, a Hispanic woman who had managed a daycare down the street, comes down the stairs. Something about her persona suggests she was built for this surviving collapse. She was from somewhere in South America, but you're too afraid to ask. 
The bravado in her step fills the room and gives a sense of order to everyone in her vicinity. She was a natural leader. The building was old, old enough to be enshrined in lead and asbestos, but young enough to still have concrete walls. In the far corner, shelves had been put up, and an array of various water jugs had started being collected. While the water still worked, the quality seemed to consistently go downhill, and you didn't seem to think that was going to change in the foreseeable future. There were a couple dozen jugs so far, and you imagined that would last the group a couple of days at most. A few kids in the building rumble down the stairs, giggling and carrying too many empty jugs. The last boy trips on his way down, sending up a flurry of translucent plastic into the air, and he sprawls like germs across the floor. Hi folks, it's Andy, and well, it's the Poor Pearls Almanac. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about forestry, and while it will be a little sciencey, it's really important to have these basic foundational pieces of knowledge in order to really understand some of the general ideas that we end up talking about more in the future. While forestry might not fit into what you think of as your traditional understanding of prepping, it's a really functional part of how we both prep in terms of planting trees to be successful for foods in the future, but also things like foraging and understanding the ecology around us to be better stewards of this landscape. With that in mind, I want to talk about a few folks specifically as well, some of the early leaders of the conservation movement in the United States. While most folks are familiar with people like Henry Thoreau, and I have to say even my 19-year-old self was really enamored with his feisty, rugged individualism, digging just a bit deeper finds many more interesting characters who paved the way for naturalism, and not surprisingly, most of those folks either vocally identified on the left, such as Henry Stephen Salt, or John Muir, and Aldo Leopold. While Aldo's politics aren't really known, he's also quoted with saying, in quote, Theoretically, the mechanization of farming ought to cut the farmer's chains, but whether it really does is debatable. End quote. That said, I do want to dig in specifically a bit on Aldo Leopold, because he is probably the less likely of the list that you know, and one of the more important figures of the group. A prolific writer and naturalist, he coined the term land ethic, which is really important because the concept has kind of evolved into something we still seem to be struggling to define today. The term holds that while humans are an important part of the ecosystem, we are only one part of it. As he stated, in quote, the land ethic simply enlarges the boundaries of the community to include soils, waters, plants, and animals, or collectively, the land. A land ethic, of course, cannot prevent the alteration, management, and use of these resources, but it does affirm their right to continued existence, and, at least in spots, their continued existence in a natural state. End quote. I don't think there's anyone on the left who doesn't find their ecological beliefs to fall somewhere around that statement. And of course, we do have to talk about the fact that these ideas were not born in the minds of folks like Aldo Leopold. They had been upheld across the globe by indigenous people, and still do in many cases. We had discussed in the first episode that the biggest challenge for a lot of conversations about nature is about the place of humanity within it. And we could talk about all of the problematic issues with a lot of these figures, and that's a conversation for another day, but for folks that are just becoming exposed to this stuff, it's important to know who these folks are 
and the role that they had in the conservation movement. While there were many good things they did accomplish, there were plenty of bad things that came from some of these projects. And again, that's a conversation for another day. It's just something worth keeping in the back of your head as we move forward with these conversations. So in this sense, we have a stewardship of the land. As we exist within nature, we are also responsible in some capacity for what havoc we bring, for example, with invasive species. We have a responsibility for the damages we create in some capacity, and I'm not saying that we eliminate all invasives, but rather it is our responsibility to keep them in check until native species can learn to compete and co-evolve. That part's our responsibility. Before we dig into the basics of forest ecology, you might be wondering again, what seems to be a running theme early on in this podcast, why are we even talking about this? A fundamental understanding of forest ecology is necessary as we look towards nature to develop these sustainable practices for communities to become more resilient to the changes climate change and the effects of late capitalism will have on the planet. We are better able to predict outcomes from our decisions, develop better systems for lumber, wildlife, and the food wildlife provides us, as well as developing healthy, dynamic systems that are complex and anti-entropic, helping take in energy from the sun for the planet. In understanding this dynamism, we can both help combat climate change and accelerate our movement towards a more sustainable planet. When we talk about forest ecology and our role in managing and manipulating that ecology, it's important to remember that forests are hundreds of years in the making, and we aren't going to fundamentally change the entire structure of it in months or years, unless you're looking to just cut them all down. Many times the decisions to create healthier forest ecosystems aren't done for yourself, or for today, but for generations from now, and it's our duty as stewards of the planet to recognize that we are responsible for doing everything we can to help make the planet more sustainable for those future generations. So with that said, let's dig in. The term that almost every forestry class begins with is the ABCs of forestry, meaning A, abiotic, B, biotic, and C, cultural factors, which are all at work in the forest. Abiotic refers to non-living components of the forest community, that's the minerals in the soil, the topography, and the climate. These pieces support and provide the conditions for the living parts. Biotic is, well, everything else, the living stuff. The cultural elements are the interactions that humans bring to ecosystem functions. Harvesting, clearing, developing, and manipulation to those systems through forestry practices, for better or worse. So let's start with those abiotic factors in the soil. These systems support the forest and determine the species of trees and plants that grow which impact the animals and the soil biology development in that community, as well as how quickly those things grow. Abiotic site factors are often identified as more important than the biotic site components because of their ability to significantly impact how productive a site can be and in many cases, the abiotic factors are not changed easily, unlike soil biology. When we talk about climate in terms of abiotic factors, we aren't speaking simply to the temperature and precipitation patterns, but humidity, atmospheric pressure, prevailing winds, 
among other things which are all impacted by more rudimentary details such as latitude, terrain, elevation, and regional water bodies. Now, technically speaking, soil is considered an abiotic factor, despite hosting millions of living microorganisms. This is primarily because of the soil's functional relationship with plants, more specifically the soil as it encompasses dirt. We've talked about sand, silt, and clay, but in case you didn't listen to those episodes, sand is the largest particle of the three, clay being smallest, and silt somewhere in the middle. Sand is great for drainage and aeration, but can often lose nutrients for that same reason. Clay is on the opposite end of the spectrum, with compaction being a problem leading to poor drainage and aeration, and is generally well suited for maintaining nutrients because they can't run off. Silt is slightly better than clay, but not really a good middle ground. When you hear the term loam, it is speaking to having a balanced mix of all three components, so it has decent drainage, good nutrient containment, and really good aeration. Because of this, loam is ideal for tree size potential, and trees will generally reach their maximum height in loam, while they will remain generally smaller in stature in sandy and clay soils. The second piece of the abiotic component of forest ecology is topography, the amount of slope steepness and the aspect, which influence tree species composition and diversity. Slope is a double-edged sword. More slope allows for more diversity, to an extent, but erosion and runoff are a problem, and generally speaking, the more slope you have, the less soil depth you have, limiting the productivity of the land, while still giving you more surface area for growth. It makes sense if you think about it, runoff reduces the ability of soil to build. From a farming perspective, developing terraces on hills allows for more productive farming compared to flat land, as well as allowing for more diversity in what you can grow, and even extending the seasons of certain plants. In nature, however, the bottom of the slopes end up as extremely fertile soil as all of the runoff accumulates there. Traditionally, that's why river deltas and the foothills of mountains have always been the site of agricultural productivity. The second component of topography is aspect, or the direction that the slope faces, which impacts the amount of sunlight, heat, and wind that the land is exposed to. The primary area that aspect impacts come from solar insulation, which is just a fancy term for sun exposure. East-facing has the strongest rays from early morning to noon, while west is the opposite and receives the strongest rays in the evening. North and south receive the strongest rays at noon, but north's rays are significantly more weak than the south, and we're speaking from the northern hemisphere. Because of this, south-facing slopes tend to be warmer and drier, and conversely, north-facing slopes will be cooler and more moist, which in many climates is better suited for forest growth. East-facing slopes, because they get that early morning sun, warm up earlier in the day and stay cooler in the afternoon, limiting exposure to higher stress during the hottest parts of the day, while west-facing slopes warm up later when it's already hot and dry out in the evening. Because of this, north and east are the two better sites for forest growth because of their limited exposure to extremes. Depending where you live, this should give you an idea of how you want your garden to be laid out, or if you're working on pasture and looking to plant trees, the trees that might be more susceptible to extreme temperatures might want to stay on the east side of the slope. 
Moving on to the biotic components of forest ecology, we'll start with the most obvious, trees. When you see a tree in the forest, is it healthy? I mean, how can you tell? It's big, it's alive, so it must be doing fine, right? Well, trees actually need to continually to expand their crowns. That is, their upper canopy and branches to maintain their health. So when you see trees that are very large with limited branches, those trees are probably stressed. And if you're looking to manage some chunk of forest for productivity, it makes sense to cut those trees down and let the larger trees expand their canopy. Those trees with larger canopies will put out more nuts or berries than if you kept that larger canopy and the limited tree, making removing the weak tree better for the health of the environmental community while giving you the added benefit of firewood. Of course, sunlight isn't the only impact on trees. Insects, disease, and animals can also both positively and negatively impact tree health. Whether we are discussing deer eating the bark off of young trees or decomposing animals returning organic matter into the soil. So when we're talking about these various factors in forest productivity, it's important to be aware of the law of minimums and the law of maximums. They're pretty straightforward. The law of minimums states that as a factor approaches its extreme minimum, say a water shortage, the relative effect becomes increasingly great. Eating a bowl of soup if you're starving to death is going to have a bigger impact on you than if you're having second lunch, right? The law of maximums is the mirror of this. If you're already unhealthy and starting to eat double bacon breakfast burritos, those are going to have a much more significant impact on your health than an otherwise healthy person doing the same. These two laws apply to all of the different factors that impact tree health. The most significant factor for trees and most plants is shade tolerance. Generally, trees fall into one of three categories, shade tolerant, intermediately tolerant, and shade intolerant. Most folks are aware that some plants do better in shade than others, I know. However, shade tolerance impacts whether or not tree seeds will germinate, and intolerant trees may not germinate under 50% sunlight, while shade tolerant trees will up to 20% sunlight. Shade tolerant trees are generally able to grow under a main canopy, and while they grow slowly, they're generally longer living trees. Because they grow slowly, they also are able to handle stress well, making them often more resilient than shade intolerant trees, and they can wait in the understory until those fast growing shade intolerant trees die off. Because of this, generally their full development happens later and because of this, they are considered a late successional forest species. Here on the East Coast, these shade-tolerant species are usually beech, hemlock, black gum, hornbeam, dogwood, hawthorn, hickory, and basswood. Intermediate shade-tolerant trees need more sunlight than shade-tolerant trees, and they grow a little bit more quickly than the ones listed above and are also generally long-lived. Typically, they produce a lot of seeds because their germination needs are much more specific than either open fields or full forest, and generally rely on canopy gaps for their species to survive. The most common members of this category are red oaks and white oaks, and even white pine. Shade intolerant trees, as stated before, have rapid growth and short lives. 
They produce lots of seeds that are widely distributed since they cover the top layers of canopies and need their seeds to be carried to wherever large ground disturbances may have taken place, which is where they will be able to germinate due to their needs for full sunlight. The most common species for this category are aspens, poplars, white ashes, birches, and cherries, but also white pine usually falls into this category. And again, I'm focusing primarily on the east coast of the U.S. So now that we've framed up these basic categories for tree growth, I think the process of identifying forest succession will be pretty straightforward. If you're not familiar with the term, forest succession is the natural progression of forest communities from one type of community to another. Forest succession continues to progress until either an event destroys the forest or it reaches its climactic stage. We now typically talk of forests that have been at this stage for an extended period of time as old-growth forests, and there's still a few dozen left in the Northeast. This whole process begins with a disturbance. It could be a flood, earthquake, volcano, or a subdivision that gets cleared and is never built. Pioneer species, those species that love that full light and fast growth, move in quickly to cover the soil. As it ages, the transition species begin to take over as those fast-growing, short-lived trees die off. Eventually, those transitional species die off and the late succession species start to take over, entering into that climax stage. This process usually takes at least 100 years and can give some essential clues into the history of the forest or the land you're interested in. To dig in a little deeper, during the pioneer species stage, we don't see those fast-growing trees show up right away. Think of an abandoned farm. The grasses, weeds, and ferns take over early on. Those broadleaf herbaceous species grow quickly and are often annuals or very short-lived perennials, and they begin the process of breaking up the soil and building those biological communities. If we think back to the first episode on soils, that soil cycle with the weeds and the trees is a reflection of this pioneer species change. That soil cycle with weeds to trees is a reflection of this pioneer species stage, but from the underground. As the system develops, shrubs and tall grasses begin to take over and crowd out those annuals. These bushes tend to be various low-growing berries and vines, as well as smaller trees like hawthorn, dogwood, sumac, and viburnums. They're slightly tolerant of shade and more resilient than grasses and weeds. The forest will be covered in a mix of these plants as there is no clear-cut time when one species completely replaces another, and the topography in the landscape that we just talked about impacting sunlight and nutrients makes some areas succeed more quickly than others. So now that we know how this succession process works, we can use our ability to manipulate the forest to either accelerate that succession or set it back, depending on what your goals are. For example, if we're thinning out a forest, we allow the remaining trees to have better access to sunlight and nutrients, helping them grow more quickly and moving the forest succession more quickly. In this process, we can keep undergrowth that goes into the next succession and eliminate all of the competition for those trees so they can quickly and fully take advantage of that condition. Whereas if we were to clear cut for timber or to turn a forest into a prairie to then plant apple trees, we set the whole process back to the pioneer stage. Now it's not only plants that are impacted by the forest stage succession, but the animals as well. 
some species are adapted to specific stages of forest succession. By maintaining certain habitats in specific stages, we are able to help or attract animals that there is a vested interest in increasing the population of. For example, deer, the most commonly hunted meat in North America, do well in late-stage pioneer forests where fields are at the late stage of transitioning to forest. The early stage of forest succession after late-stage pioneer forests, when those fast-growing trees try to take over, is the converse of that late-stage pioneer forest and actually has the least amount of food available for animals and is traditionally the hardest forest stage to hunt within. This mini stage is called the pole stage because the trees all look like poles as they stretch up to the sky to outcompete each other for the canopy. They're usually also super dense at this stage as well, so no sunlight is getting beneath it, so all you have are these trees that haven't matured enough to drop any nuts or fruit. So does this mean we only want one or two forest stages? No. In fact, the healthy forest has a mix of each of these stages as well as a mix of species of trees in both shape and quantity to meet the demands of all species of animals. By having all of this unique habitat, a forest is more resilient to any changes through its complexity. Further, as we're able to recognize these habitats and successional stages, we're better able to interpret the history of the forest. So with all that knowledge, it makes sense to now see how to identify the trees in your forest, Proper tree identification is essential for knowing how to best manage everything from a single tree to a large group of trees or stand in a forest. For example, if you want to manage a forested area for wildlife, you could encourage the specific tree species that provide high quality wildlife food and cover. Tree identification can also give you a better understanding of the environmental conditions at the location where a tree is going, such as whether it's a wet site or a dry site. If you can recognize a maple, red maples will grow in dry areas while sugar maples will traditionally grow in wetter areas. So you can already learn about things like the water table just by identifying the different types of maple trees. This can help you know what tree would grow best if you're going to undertake tree planting or any other management activities. This approach is often summed up by the saying, plant the right tree in the right location. It's also crucial in helping identify what other species may exist in the forest, some of which may be edible. There are 10 major tree parts or attributes that are most useful in tree identification. And I know that sounds like a lot. There's no way you can listen to a list that long, but it's really straightforward. It's the leaves, the flowers, the fruits, the bark, the branches, specifically twigs, the smells, the taste, the tree size, shape, and location. You've heard of all those things before. Leaves, flowers, and fruits are often the easiest to use to identify trees because of their distinctiveness. However, these only allow you to identify trees during specific seasons. Bark identification is considered to be the most useful because of its ability to be done year round. And honestly, as you get into this process, you'll start to recognize the bark especially on bigger trees because you don't want to be craning your neck back all the time to try to identify the tree. For the sake of time, and the fact that this is a podcast with no visual representations, we're going to talk quickly about leaves, focusing on the more useful trees, and just to get you guys familiar with the terminology of leaves for identification. I know it can be a bit daunting, 
but it seems like there's literally a million different trees, but understanding your local forests and these basic concepts helps frame that process in a much more digestible way, and it will ultimately be more useful than trying to memorize leaves without any index for the identifiable markers. With that said, there are three main types of leaves on the east coast of North America. The first and most common is the broad and flat leaf. These are the leaves found on most deciduous trees. Deciduous trees are trees which lose their leaves every year. Sometimes you may hear the term hardwood used for deciduous trees and softwood for evergreens. These don't refer to the wood hardness at all. These leaves can be a range of 1 to 30 inches, as well as being capable of being very narrow or very wide. The second most common type of leaf is the needle, even though most folks don't think of it as a leaf. Needles perform all the same functions as leaves, and do actually fall off trees, just not at the same time and they typically usually survive multiple years. Needles can be clustered on branches or they can individually connect to twigs. The last leaf type is the scale-like leaf, which are usually very small, less than an inch, thin, flat, and are usually on introduced non-native species. With that basic knowledge, we can look at leaf arrangement, structure, and margins. Again, we'll just cover this enough so you kind of know what you're looking for in terms of if you want to pursue tree identification on your own. With broad and flat leaf, aka most of the leaves you think of when someone says the word leaf, there are generally three main arrangement patterns. The first and most common is alternate arrangement, which means the leaves on the twig rotate which side of the twig they're on, left, right, left, right. The second arrangement is opposite arrangement, which just means the leaves are paired together. The last and least common arrangement is the world, which has three leaves attached in the same spot. Every leaf has a base with a bud, a little bump that is, protruding just above the base. So let's jump into leaf structure really quick, specifically with broad and flat leaves. Simple leaves have a single leaf stalk and are the most common leaf you'll find. Compound leaves have leaflets, they look like mini leaves on a green twig. They're not small leaves in a cluster though because they only have one bud at the stem of the leaf. These leaves are either pinnate, meaning that the leaflets are arranged opposite from each other in pairs, or palmate, meaning that all of the leaflets share a common point where they connect together. Lastly, let's talk quickly about leaf margins, which is the edge of the leaf. Leaves may have one of five margins. Some have what's called a serrate edge, which means that it has sharp, forward-facing cuts in the leaf. Double serrate leaves have two different heights of sharp, forward-facing cuts. A third option you might see is a dentate edge, which is when the sharp cut or point faces outward. The fourth type is lobed, which looks just like it sounds, rounded edges that stick out like earlobes. The last type is called entire edges, because the entire edge is the same, there are no breaks in the leaf shape at the margin. And with that and a guidebook, you can probably identify 80% of the trees in your forests. We could talk further about veins and a bunch of other things used in leaf identification, but this is a podcast. And besides, like I said, with what you have, you can already identify most of what you're going to see. So from here, we can transition towards forest management called silviculture 
where we can manage forests and align its health with our own through tree and plant management, which can also benefit us. When folks hear the term forest management, what they usually think is to clear out the dead stuff so the living can thrive, and this is not often very helpful. Many times, standing deadwood, that is, dead trees that are still standing up, are an important habitat for certain species, and eliminating all of it doesn't offer much benefit for the forest as a whole, while obviously carrying some negatives. When we say forest management, what we mean is identifying which trees to keep and which to remove, and why we do so, as well as how to create healthy forest regeneration. A simple rule is to really manage the light, the primary source for all life, by looking up. When we talk about forest regeneration, we are talking about the next succession of trees in our forest, and we can do that by looking at the ground and where light reaches the ground. New growth is dependent on whether the canopy of the trees in the forest is tight or closed. With limited light reaching the ground, many germinated seeds will just die. By removing unhealthy trees to create openings in the canopy, we can build seedling numbers over time and control which species will become a part of the canopy in the future. Here in coastal New England, where most of the land has been clear-cut until about the last 150 years or so, almost all of the forests here are pine-oak ecoregions. If you walk through the forest, you're almost guaranteed to see large pine trees with almost no branches until the canopy where the branches spread far, blocking out the sun from many other species. This process is called canopy spreading. Removing some of these trees, or removing the unhealthy trees in the understory, helps ensure that regeneration occurs and is crucial for the long-term viability of the forest, and helps the site meet its carrying capacity potential. Simply cutting these trees to open up sunlight does not mean that the understory is ready to grow. To ensure desirable outcomes, we have to consider the composition of the understory and the canopy. Are the current trees ones that we want? I'll use our current pine oak forest in my backyard, which abuts more woods and equals a couple dozen acres. No, most of the trees are not desirable. I currently have mostly pines, some red oak, even less white oak, one big tooth aspen, a couple of eastern red cedars, a handful of pitch pines, a couple dozen gray birches, a handful of black cherries, and a few red maples. Of those, only the oaks produce nuts to draw in wildlife for consumption or to feed my livestock or myself. The red maples and gray birches can be tapped for syrup. Pine isn't a really great burning wood, and there's only so much you can do with pine needles. The next succession for my forest in nature would be to become an oak hickory forest, which would be much more useful for me, as well as for the local ecology. Now, why wouldn't I, say, try to make the forest something else completely? Bring in hazelnuts, edible cherries, and other fruits, and so on. I mean, I could, but are the conditions on the site capable of supporting those trees without significant input on my part, and would they be sustainable? If the forest was then left to be wild, would any of those trees survive on their own? We'll talk about that more in another episode, but it's something you want to start thinking about. To circle back, when we are looking at the understory growth and where to open up a canopy, we want to identify not just the species we want to see move into line in succession within the forest, but also healthy trees 
which will be able to do that role as quickly as permitted. This may mean planting the trees you want for the future 10 years in advance. Now, to transition to the bigger picture, the structure in our forests have two components, vertical and horizontal. Vertical, as you probably would expect, is the arrangement of plants from the soil to the canopy. Horizontal structure looks at the arrangement of the species mixes and the ages of those species, as well as the transitional areas for forest successions. These trees that we identify to become the future trees of the canopy, the ones we are clearing the canopy for, are called residual trees. By controlling the establishment, composition, structure, and growth of the forest, we are able to help guide the forest with the desirable traits we want to see in it and accelerate that process. If you guys remember the first episode about complex systems theory, healthy forests are complex. When decisions are made about clearing trees, it must be made with both the local impacts and the forest-wide impacts considered. When we start to consider these trees to cut, we have to understand its place in the canopy. The largest trees with the biggest crowns, in my cases, pines, are considered the dominant tree. Co-dominant trees are slightly smaller, but often a clear second in size. Generally, they don't have those same round crowns, but may appear as though like a chunk was taken out of the round crown, either from being right next to other trees, or another tree coming down and destroying a branch. For me, these are primarily the red oaks. Intermediate trees are generally the trees you see trying to break into the top canopy, usually with very poor crowns and just a few branches. Depending on shade tolerance, those may or may not respond well to having more access to sun because of their poor growth structure. The last layer is the suppressed layer, which is usually similar trees to the dominant and co-dominant species, but have zero access to direct sun. The goal in cutting trees isn't to simply cut down the undergrowth, but to cut trees that are competitive with one another for the same space. If we think about what we had talked about for complex systems, competition is a negative-negative relationship, there is no benefit for either tree, so our best solution, since we can't move one of the trees, is to remove it. It's important to remember when we're doing this management, we don't just want to cut any undergrowth. The suppressed layer is often the next generation of forest canopy, and managing what continues to grow allows us to meet an end goal of what we want the forest to be. For me, I want high BTU, coppicing wood that also provides edible leaves for my animals and an edible crop with the ability to grow over 60 feet, and if we're talking about the perfect tree, it would also have a thin crown to let light down into the understory to create almost two canopies while also being native. The list for that tree in the northeast, and really anywhere, is pretty limited, and you'll probably get a list of trees that does most, but not all. For me, the ideal candidates are white oaks, white birches, shagbark hickories, and mulberries. Of all of these, the only two with thin canopies are the locust and the birch, but the others have edible fruit, nuts, or saps, high BTU for firewood, and coppicing abilities. Oak is probably the worst for the canopy, and I already have a lot of it, so time is of value and I'll keep them around. By identifying the trees that you want, you can manage your forest to make it work for you and your community's needs. 
And of course, we want to try to keep as many of the native community trees as possible. To keep this diversity as we think about the next generation of the forest, it's important to consider that some sunlight needs to make it to the forest floor for seeds to germinate. This should be part of your consideration when making decisions on what to remove. Where is the sunlight going to go if that tree is gone? Will it make a difference? Additionally, it's important to keep in mind that you need trees that can provide seeds, stumps, or suckers for species to stay in a forest ecosystem. I had mentioned earlier that a value to me was trees that coppice. If you're not familiar with the term, there are five ways to keep tree growth after harvesting some wood. The first most obvious way is through seeds. I think that's pretty straightforward. The second is through suckers. If you've ever had to battle briars, you know what suckers are. New plants that grow off of roots that were impacted by some kind of stress. The third is through stumps, called coppicing. Specific species of trees will grow from the stump of a freshly cut tree, using the same root system to quickly grow that same species and try to replace it. This is a common practice in smaller areas with limited resources, and the UK has a great history of it. Here in the United States, it's a fairly rare practice, but it is gaining traction given the current ecological climate and focus on faster regeneration. Pollarding is the fourth way to regenerate tree growth, and the idea is pretty much the same thing as coppicing, except you're not doing it at the stump, but typically above a browsing height for a specific animal. This is a great way to cut trees you want to harvest, but keeping the new growth away from animals from grazing so that it can still survive. The last way to regrow trees is through cuttings, and there's a few ways to do that. I don't want to dig in too deep on it as I do want to talk about these subject areas on their own on a future date, so just be aware of that. With all this said, I want to talk about how this all plays into the big picture of creating sustainable, small-scale agricultural practices. We can develop canopies of food and energy-producing trees that can sustainably replenish themselves by continuing to use the same root system, growing more quickly and efficiently. Further, by keeping a thin canopy, we're able to have a secondary canopy of trees and plants that can further produce other resources, willows, hazels, autumn olive, osage orange, and persimmons are all coppice-friendly trees that can be kept smaller to provide edible fruits, nuts, and wood for various specific tasks. If we are interested in moving away from coppicing trees, we can look towards small fruiting trees and large bushes to fill these spaces. Filberts, elderberries, goji berries, among others, will still stay under 25 feet and provide food for people and livestock. If we were to integrate this food canopy into an intensive rotational grazing system that we discussed quickly in the soils topic, we can build the soil and have healthy grazing grasses, clover, and other annuals to further feed our ecosystem and increase our diversity in the ecology. Using trees that offer natural boarding like Osage Orange or building natural fences with things like hedgelang or woven fencing allows us to continue to use all of the elements around us to maximize production in a way that is also beneficial for nature. By creating complex systems to develop more productive, resilient systems, I think it's easy to see how all of these pieces we have been talking about separately 
start to come together. At this point, we have covered the succession cycle of forests, how to ID the trees in your forest, and how to manage the health of your forest in alignment with your goals for sustainability. It's important to keep these concepts in mind as you start thinking about how you want to work with the forest around you, whether it's through working on your own property, a community piece of land, or through guerrilla gardening. Which reminds me, if you're not familiar with guerrilla gardening, it's a really great way to put your knowledge and get some practice in before it really matters. If you've ID'd a hickory tree, for example, and want to plant some more, since so few are left, take some time and practice taking cuttings to clone the tree you've ID'd. Even if you don't have anywhere to plant them for yourself, if you visit any public park, take the time to plant those cuttings in spaces where you think they'll be able to thrive, using the basic tools we have here. Not only can you do cuttings, but you can take seeds and plant them, but make sure you read up on what they need to germinate. Doing this will help build up your skills and help create more dynamic, edible, and resilient forest communities. Plus, it's really fun to do. So, I think we're going to cut it here. It's been really fun talking about this stuff, and hopefully you're enjoying listening and learning a thing or two. If you think what we've talked about is important, please give us a review on iTunes, or come support this work on Patreon, or even a couple bucks goes a long way in keeping this project going. Until next time, guys, stay safe and plant some trees. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. <laughs>